It's the show where Hawaii's newsmakers come to talk and to take your questions live. From the nation's capital to Honolulu Hale, from the state legislature to the fifth floor, we bring the experts to you and ask them what you want to know. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Kalei on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. Aloha and good Wednesday morning to you. I'm Yanji Denise, joined by Ryan Kalei and this is Spotlight Hawaii on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. Ryan, this morning we are focusing on crime in our community and talking with the man who is responsible for helping to eradicate much of it. Yeah, someone who uh, always has a lot to share. And we always have a lot of topics to discuss. Joins us this morning. We want to welcome in Honolulu Prosecutor Steve Om here this morning. Joining us. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, good mo- good morning, Yenji and Ryan. Good to see you folks again. You know, let's start off pr- uh, broadly here, uh, just with the perception of crime here on the island of Oahu. There seems to be uh, a number of, of course, high profile cases that have happened within the past month or so. Uh, that causes some to believe that crime is on the rise here on the island. Uh, what are you seeing from your perspective? Is this reality or just a perception that may be coming out because of the focus of some individual cases that we're seeing? Okay, I think it, it really is important to look at statistics to get a, get a broad sense of it because it's very easy to focus on the individual cases and the anecdote. And we will do our very best to work with HPD on any of the crimes that are reported uh, to hold people accountable. But in stepping back, it's really important. I know the Star Advertiser had a poll. It's not scientific, but it shows what the advertiser readers think. You know, and you can say 82% of the readers thought that and who voted thought that crime is up everywhere. Uh, and that it's not in a smaller group, 17%, it was uh, about the same and 1% saying it was improving. So in, in stepping back, looking at the stats that HPD provided island wide, you can see that from 21 to 22, crime is down in almost every category whether it's uh, burglaries are down 18%, larceny theft 12, motor vehicle theft, violent crimes like robbery, about the same, down 2%, uh, race, forcible rape, sex is down 11%. Murder went up a little bit, but the numbers, uh, unfor- you know, unfortunately, were 25. But in both 2018 and 19, it was 24. So it really is about back to pre-COVID levels. Now, if if you had a crime in your neighborhood or, or there could be some neighborhoods when it went up a little bit, that certainly is true. This is island wide. And if something happened to you, stats don't matter. You know, you're the victim. So but we need to step back and look at it, I think, to give us a sense of where we're going, where we're moving with it. What do you attribute to those numbers going down? Why do you think that you are seeing those gains? Well, I think, the, you know, the public is reporting things. They're being willing to testify if called on. Uh, the police are doing a good job. Uh, we're working closely with them in, in all sorts of different arenas. I think the weed and seed efforts are paying off safe and sound Waikiki because that, that just leads to more co- collaboration and trying to work on things. There have been a couple of laws that were passed, like for catalytic converters, 
making it very difficult to to exchange that or sell that to a recycler. The, those crimes are are way down. Some specific things like that, I think, really really did help. But I think it's you know it's the public being willing to report crime and testify if need be, and being vigorous and aggressive about prosecuting cases. Well, one area that we know is always uh, looked at and something that your office is really focusing in on is the area of Waikiki, of course, because of it being such a tourist destination, as well as this uh, really uh, combination between locals as well as visitors that sometimes create some conflict. Uh, But what can you tell us about the numbers specifically of what we're seeing in crime in Waikiki? Uh, Are those numbers on the rise? Uh, And how is the Safe and Sound program in Waikiki uh, helping to you know, really keep those, uh, keep what we're seeing down? Well, the numbers uh, turned out to be very good. They compared the first three months, the first quarter of 2022 with the first three months, the first quarter of 2023, because a uh, safe and sound Waikiki started in September of 2022. So you can see that assaults are down by 15%, burglary by 25, uh, a lot of fewer drugs and uh, liquor out in public like that. That's a huge drop. Robberies down 64%. So the numbers, you know, really are good. Police are really aggressive about arresting people when they're uh, not doing what they should do. We're prosecuting it. All of these cases are handled on an immediate charge case cases. So we try to deal with it immediately. Uh, And one of the things that I think has been finally working well are asking for geographic restrictions for folks. We we weren't getting much traction on that, but I know I've been talking about it with you guys and other media. The mayor has, the city council members have. And so starting in January, uh, the judges were granting our requests when people get arrested and they don't live in Waikiki or work there or get services there granting our request for a geographic restriction. Essentially, the judge is telling the person, you have to stay out of Waikiki for the period of your probation. So six months for a petty misdemeanor or a year for a full. And then if the police spot them, we work with them and get the defendant arrested again on a on a revocation of their probation. So some of these guys are hard-headed. They're used to hanging out in that area, getting into trouble. So we're really focusing on them. But the crime numbers going down are really good. Again, there have been some really horrific crimes. uh, But when you step back and look at it, there are fewer, a lot fewer crimes right now than there were a year ago. When you look at those Waikiki numbers, they certainly are encouraging. What I'm concerned about as someone who doesn't live in Waikiki is okay, those are perhaps bad actors who are, you know, committing crimes in Waikiki. When you do that geographic restriction and they go to another neighborhood, what is to say that that person won't commit a similar crime in that neighborhood? Well, when we did Weed and Seed the first time, like 20 years ago, we looked carefully at the areas around it and we did not see any displacement that way. Partly there's something about whether it's Chinatown or Waikiki, where you have this mix, as Ryan alluded to, and you have a lot of bars, you have people getting high, getting drunk. They're going to commit that kind of crime there and, and say in Chinatown, they're not going to go five blocks up Liliha to commit the same crime. It's something about that area that makes crime easier to happen. And part of it is their colleagues may be there, and that may be part of the problem. So we're keeping an eye on that, too. And as you see from the island-wide 
numbers are down there too. But we we are watching that. We want to make sure we're just not displacing a problem. One other pro, high profile story that has come out of Waikiki is what we saw uh, with a Narcan, excuse me, with a fentanyl exposure. Uh, several deaths that happened in this drug overdose that happened. We are seeing more and more cases, and we've talked to people on this program about the threats of fentanyl and its uh, really its emergence here in our community. Uh, there have been conversations and talks through the legislature as well as on the city council about requiring bars and other establishments to carry Narcan. Um, what are your thoughts about what we're seeing with just the fentanyl um, epidemic that's happening here in our community? And would you support this type of uh, drug to be required in some of the uh, bars and establishment to help those that may suffer this overdose? Okay, I, fentanyl is a huge problem nationwide. There were 107,000 people who died of overdoses last year across the country, and 70,000 of those were fentanyl. Uh, uh, Secretary of State Blinken brought that up in the recent discussions with the leaders in China because the precursor chemicals for fentanyl are coming from China, going to Mexico. Fentanyl is being made and it's affecting the entire country. Uh, last year, we had a, about 320 drug deaths. Uh, 66% of those were meth. That is still our biggest problem. However, 25%, 79 people died of, uh, of a fentanyl overdose. And that's up from 48 the year before and 28 the year before that. So it is a growing problem. Uh, and different islands are trying to deal with it in different ways. One of the problems is people are getting it without realizing it. And I think that's what happened at Waikiki. Those folks thought they were going to party with cocaine and it turned out to have fentanyl in it. And in some cases, the dealers don't know that it's in there. It's just being mixed with meth. It's being, uh, being mixed with cocaine. Even in some cases, it's being mixed with marijuana. And it's one of those things that if, you know, if adults make the choice to use those drugs, it's really rolling the dice these days. And I think we have to try to hit this whatever way we can, whether it's, you know, arresting the dealers, whether it's educating the young folks, that it isn't just adults always, you know, trying to scare them. It really is dangerous now. And uh, they take that into their hands. So Narcan can be helpful. Um, anything that will give somebody a second chance. But then that person needs to go to treatment and realize they almost got killed and take some personal responsibility with this and, and try to deal with it. But I, my guess is things are going to get worse before they get better. You know, on the subject of Narcan, do you think that one of those remedies that is being talked about that Ryan referenced uh, is this idea of having Narcan mandatory in establishments that serve alcohol? Do you think that that's an appropriate response? I think it's one of many. I, I don't have a problem with it. It's not cheap, which is a, a challenge. But anytime people are together, they're going to make worse decisions if they've been drinking. Uh, you know, we have first responders who have it. I know some people are buying, you know, trying to get it for themselves at home if they have somebody in their life. I know to some people it, it may be seen as a way of encouraging drug use. I think if it saves lives, we got to do, you know, do whatever we can to do it. But people do need to take responsibility and uh, realize that if, if they had to get a dose of, of Narcan, it means they put their lives at risk. They need to do something about it and figure out their own issues and stop using.
you know, you mentioned the statistics on crystal meth that continues to be, you know, the, the leading uh, cause of death amongst drug users uh, here in Hawaii still. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit ab about how that type of preventative measures is incorporated into programs such as the Weed and Seed program, knowing that drug use is obviously a big part of some of the crime that we are also seeing in areas like Chinatown and maybe yeah. in, uh, in Waikiki. How does the Weed and Seed program deal directly with those who have these substance abuse issues? Well, it's what we are really trying to focus on are the homeless because they, they consume a bunch of the drugs. Not all homeless, you know, have drug and alcohol problems. But when you look at the chronically homeless who are on the streets of Chinatown, I think almost all of them have a mental health and or drug and alcohol problem. And unless they deal with those underlying problems, they're never going to get off the street and stay off the street. And so we, we started a program called Sudafast, where we got all the agencies working together. So if somebody gets arrested, and there have been about 150 homeless folks on the street in Chinatown that have been arrested so far, they can get assessed at OCCC, at the jail, and then identified to go into a program uh, to try to help them deal with it's typically a dual diagnosis situation, both a drug problem and a mental health pro problem. And if they can deal with that, I think it'll really help them. I, I would once again call on the judiciary to take proba probation, felony probation more seriously and hold the offenders accountable. Because if they start using drugs again and there's no consequence, they're going to go right back to the street. And that would be the that would be the worst thing that could happen there. You know, one of the things that has been making a lot of news recently is a spate of gun violence involving young people. We had a cockfight in Ma'ili that resulted in a shooting there. Uh, there was a um, Makaha Beach shooting, and then recently a 17-year-old was shot in Ma'ili. What can you tell us about, you know, young people and guns and what you think is going on? Well, it it, it really is concerning. Uh, and... The actual numbers of crimes committed with guns has not changed much in between 21 and 22. Uh, but at the, whether you're talking about robberies or aggravated assaults or murder, but this year there have been several. And it, you know, starting with the very basics, being a parent is really hard, but it's also really important. And I would urge all parents to try to know where your kid is all the time, who they're hanging out with. Do they have access to weapons? Make sure you lock, if you have a firearm in your home or more, one or more, make sure you lock it up so kids can't get it. I worry that there's some somehow like a contagious effect that when they see it happening, you know, that it makes it easier for them to think they need to have it out there. We are concerned about, you know, are, is this gang activity and is that associated with it? We're certainly looking at it from all angles, uh, but it's tragic. And if a, if a person under 18 uh, is looked at for a crime, uh, the, the lead judge in family court, if we file a petition, will have a waiver hearing. And what it means is they look at the police reports, they assume they're all true. And then the question is, if the person, you know, they think that person committed that uh, offense like murder, the question is, is family court, does it have programs or approaches that are appropriate to deal with that? And murder, the answer is almost never going to be yes. And so if you have a 16 or 17 year old, it, the longest you can hold them is to age 19. So we would certainly be filing petitions in any case like that. 
and the likelihood is that kid will get waived to adult court uh, and then they'd be tried as an adult. So there are serious consequences to it. And young kids don't often think about the consequences of their actions, but I, I wish they would because they could find themselves in prison for a very long time. And in the position that you're in, I mean, how do you combat that? Is it just through education efforts that uh, more education needs to be done with minors when it comes to guns? Is it stricter laws that need to be passed by the legislature? I mean, how in your role and your capacity uh, and, and leading this charge, uh, is it more on the education side? I mean, I, I guess the question is, how do you combat that when uh, this could be something that we see more of uh, and, and something that you're trying to prevent? Well, I think whatever we can do to keep the guns out of their hands is important. Uh, and the more federally they can do to keep ghost guns from getting sent in parts in the mail, people put it together. I don't think other laws locally, like punishments or something, are going to matter. They're, they're pretty strong right now. The last case I did here at the prosecutor's office my first time around was the murder of a police officer. And so that guy was like 20 years old when he was convicted and he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life, life without parole. So there are extremely harsh consequences. And, and I think it's education. I think it's parents talking to their kids and saying, stay away from firearms. And if you're carrying a firearm, you're going to be likely to use it. And it's going to escalate an argument faster. Uh, and part of it is just, you know, we were out there at a meeting uh, in my Ely uh, that, Representative Tupola hosted. I was there with uh, Major Lambert from HPD, and a lot of community members really want to get their community as safe as possible. And so, talking to them about you know being eyes and ears out that, be willing to report things. HPD can investigate. We will prosecute. But it's going to take a whole community effort. This is a real challenge, and a lot of it begins at home. You know that's that's a hard thing to do, but parents need to be accountable for their kids. And, and try to keep an eye on them and, and set them on the right path. I want to ask you for an update on the Sarah Yara case, just for our, so our viewers are familiar. That was the McKinley High School student who was uh, killed in a hit and run on Kapiolani Boulevard back in February. We know that that driver, the accused driver in that uh, case had 164 traffic violations. And you had spoken on this program the last time you were on about some changes that you were making uh, to what you're asking for when it comes to prosecuting these repeat offenders. What can you tell us about that? Um, has the case been turned over to your office yet? Um, and what about these prosecutions? Okay. Uh, HBD is still investigating the hit and run on Kapilani Boulevard uh, involving those McKinley High School students. Uh, but what we have done is uh, really try to uh, get the courts to take those uh, any traffic cases much more seriously. So whether it's driving without license, whether it's driving without insurance, whether it's uh, speeding, whether it's reckless driving, we are looking at for multiple offenders asking for some jail time. I, I think if people know that they could actually go to o triple C and be locked up with a number of other criminals. If, if they choose to do this, I think that can change behavior. This is causing, you know, uh, a, a lot of extra work at district court. It means more people are being referred to the public defenders. It means there are going to be more trials. Uh, we're fine with that. That's what we all get paid for. Uh, but people need to be held accountable and it's totally irresponsible 
to me for people to drive around without insurance. You know, that's like you're thumbing your nose at everybody else on the street and saying, hey, if I hit you, you're on your own. And we're all paying for that right now with uninsured and underinsured coverage. Every every driver who's licensed in Hawaii has, you know, is paying that right now. And and so it's a it's a big job, but we're really working hard at this. We're going to try to hold people accountable and we'll see what happens. So because of our new policies, many more cases are being referred to the public defenders. Many more cases are set for trial. And we're just going to see how that all works out because it's up to the judges whether to convict them. We got to make sure we put on as good a case as possible for all of those. Another issue that always makes headlines and something that we also briefly talked about the last time we spoke was game rooms and what we're seeing. Uh, this continues to uh, be an issue for uh, many communities who are dealing with crime that often surrounds these game rooms, these illegal game rooms that are popping up. What efforts or what updates can you provide to us about some of the things that your office is doing to combat what we're seeing with these illegal gaming? Okay, well, we're looking at all the tools we have. The legislature uh, a session ago uh, made made promoting gambling, working at a gambling house, a felony. Uh, we are also assigning a deputy full time to be doing nuisance abatement cases. We're actually, you know, having a meeting uh, with HPD and uh, members of the attorney general's office and the U.S. attorney's office. We're trying to really up our game on going after game rooms. Major Lambert is very aggressive at HPD. We're working hand in hand with him. They're starting. There are. They're warning folks who have these illegal game rooms that it could be subject to nuisance abatement or even asset forfeiture, and we're really making a concentrated effort because we get we hear it, but the elected officials get more phone calls for game rooms and drug houses, and often it's the same thing with a game room. You know, it attracts criminals. People get shot there. There's crime there. Some have drugs. Some don't. Uh, it's a real blight on our community. So we're really trying to work as hard as we can with HPD, trying to get creative, trying to be aggressive to see if we can take down as many game rooms as possible. You know, you mentioned the workload for your office, and I'm interested to know you've talked about in the past recruitment efforts. We know that the police department is, you know, 300 or more officers short. And if you talk to the private sector, restaurants, everyone in retail is having a hard time hiring. Uh, how are your recruitment efforts going? We're having the same issues. We always have people coming, you know, wanting to help victims and do trials, but we are short uh, deputies. The attorney general's office is short. Corp counsel is short. I don't know where these graduates from UH are going. They're 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 all coming to some offices, and we're we're getting some very good people coming in. But it's it's a nationwide thing. When I talk to them. Uh, we're, we're really trying to work with the judiciary and the public defenders and Department of Health to do this exciting uh, diversion program for the serious mentally ill, mostly petty misdemeanors and misdemeanors, but trying to actually get them to help. But when we visited Miami to see how they were doing, the DA's office there has 350 positions they uh, allocated. They only have 250 lawyers. So this is a problem all across the country. And part of it is the work we do here is very difficult. It's very stressful doing trials. You're on, you know, you've got to work hard. It's very public. Uh, it, it is very stressful, but a lot of people thrive in that, uh, but not everybody. So we're all short. HPD, like you say, is, is down to, you know, 
nearly 400 officers. And so they've been good. I do have to thank the city administration, Mayor Blanchiardi, uh, Managing Director Formby, the city council. They have listened to our call to make sure we get money for our deputies for raises so we are competitive with the other uh, law enforcement groups, with the other uh, government lawyers. So nobody comes to this office to get rich, but it is they should be adequately compensated because it is hard work, but it's really important and gratifying work. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the work specifically with your office. And it's been a few years now since you've been in this role as a prosecutor. One of the things that you campaigned on and one of the things that you said you wanted to do was really uh, to clean house. Uh, of course, there's no doubt there is a perception with this office having faced some corruption with individuals that have been in department before that has caused concern about community members. At this yep. point in time in your tenure in this role, how do you feel that you've uh, done in order to reestablish that trust with the community and to uh, really take care of some of the issues that, you know, those who have unfortunately caused this bad perception and this corruption that occurred within your office. Uh, how do you think uh, you've been able to manage all of that uh, thus far? Well, I think it's been going really well. And I think to most people, we've, we've brought things back to normal. Uh, you know, we're, we're prosecuting cases. We're working with the police department. You know, I did ask a number of folks to leave when I came in and I've held people accountable. I think it's from being a judge. I'm kind of used to that. So if, you know, if somebody, when I first came in, if there was sex harassment by somebody, I got rid of them uh, and their supervisor who had allowed it to happen for years. We've had, a, you know, it's an office full of young men and women. So they're going to get in some trouble uh, and we try to uh, work with folks, uh, uh, you know, people had a perception that a lot of people were all were involved in criminal activity. And that's just not the case. Though there are there were some folks that were some of them got charged, some got, con, you know, are waiting trial, some got convicted. Others I did ask to leave if I thought they had been behaving inappropriately. But overall, uh, we've got a very good office. We've got good deputies, investigators, clerical staff, uh, you know, paralegals, uh, it, it, it's a good office all the way around. And people can be reassured that we're taking our job seriously. Uh, we're very independent. You know, nobody is above the law, you know, whether it's a police officer, whether it's a prosecutor, uh, whether it's a, somebody rich or, or somebody, you know, who's out there committing violent crime. We're going to take an even-handed approach, but I but I'm really happy with the way things are going with that. It's a it's a challenge for all of us to to find enough new lawyers to come in here uh, and do the work that's required. But restoring trust is the number one job. Uh, about and keeping the community safe is the overall arching goal, and I think we're doing a good job with that. We just got to keep pushing it and keep doing more things to make that even more effective. You came into this office at a pretty tough time, given the pandemic and all of the restrictions there were on trials and juries uh, and what could happen. I'm wondering how far of that backlog have you worked through and how much of that is weighing on your workload now? Well, that's a really good point, because when I came in, the deputies had been at home for the last year. So I got sworn in on a Saturday. I told everybody, you're back in the office on Monday. Because this kind of job takes face-to-face, -face, being in each other's offices, meeting with team captains. Uh, but for a lot of the next two years, you know, we kind of look at March 2020 through uh, March 2022 as the real heavy COVID time. And for most of that time, the courtrooms were closed. Uh, 
It did lead to a backlog, but cases, you know, have been going to trial. Plea agreements are being done. We're, we're winning more cases than we did pre-pandemic. Uh, but you need to have trials going on in order to work through the backlog. And that's that's what we're doing. There's still our cases backlog, but we're still, you know, keep pushing for it. Uh, with OCCC being, you know, completely open, the public defenders are talking to clients there and, and cases are, are, are being adjudicated the right way. We have some very good trial attorneys. We have a lot of good up and coming ones, aggressive ones. Uh, and it's fun to work with and getting them to help working with each other uh, is very helpful. We've been doing office-wide training uh, the last three years. When we did it the first summer in 2021, it was the first office-wide training in 25 years. Uh, but it means trial skills. It means bringing in experts from the community. We brought in National District Attorney Association experts because part of this is just you know, getting getting skills and, and practicing in front of others and, and getting critiques and, and the like. So, we're, you know, things are rolling now. We've got a lot of good stuff going on and we just got to keep it up, not not let up at all. Well, Honolulu Prosecutor Steve, um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we know you are a very busy man, so we uh, <laughs> definitely appreciate you taking a half an hour uh, out of your morning to join us and update our viewers on all the things that your office is working on. Thanks so much. Happy to talk to you both. Stay safe. Thanks. Well, great to hear from him, Ryan. And very interesting. You know, he shared that perception versus reality when it comes to the crime numbers. When you looked at the Honolulu Star Advertiser, uh, you know, informal, unscientific readers poll that he cited, the vast majority of people believe that crime is going up. But then he countered that with uh, countywide numbers that showed that they are, for the most part, going down. And specifically looking at the successes in Waikiki, I mean, that was pretty staggering to see you know, all, all those petty crimes and burglaries and robberies, the drug and alcohol incidences, all of that way down. And he's really attributing that to the safe and sound program and those ge geographical restrictions. Yeah, that is something that the geographical restrictions in Waikiki is something that uh, his office has been pushing hard for, but really just wasn't seeing it on the judiciary side with uh, that being implemented in the courts, but seeing that they're seeing more and more of that. This is uh, something that he has been talking about for some time on this program several times, hoping that the judiciary would begin implementing th those types of geographical restrictions for repeat offenders in the Waikiki area. And uh, he's saying that we're seeing more of that and also saying that is why we're seeing some of those numbers drop in the Waikiki area. Of course, an area that attracts many visitors and has that combination of both locals as well as those tourists that enter uh, the area and a lot of bars and establishment that sometimes can create uh, some of those uh, create a higher elevation in crime. Uh, also talking about the success that they are also seeing in Chinatown, of course, the Safe and Sound program, excuse me, the Weed and Seed program, as it's called in Chinatown, something that was the first to be set up. Uh, and, and really that Sudafast program that will not only help get people off the street, but get people the care that you need. Steve, um, someone who has really championed not only necessarily just getting people off the street, but finding treatment and uh, services that will help repeat offenders, drug users, those who su uh, suffer from substance abuse to get the treatment that they need so that we are not seeing these repeat offenders in these areas. Uh, but we also heard his comments and thoughts about what we're seeing with fentanyl and the rise there, uh, saying that this is a nationwide epidemic and something that will only continue to get worse before it gets better. Uh, and his thoughts about Narcan being required in some of these establishments, saying that it could help, but did note that it is costly to have uh, but it is just one of the tools that will be needed in order to fight what we're seeing with fentanyl in our community. 
Yeah, and he also spoke about gun crimes that we're seeing, especially involving young people. There have been several high-profile incidents that have happened recently, um, bringing a lot of attention to the issues of guns and youth. Uh, and he there again said it's a multifaceted approach. It not only has to do with convictions uh, and, and prosecutions, but really it has to start with the families. And he's really calling on parents to pay pay more attention to where your children are, who they're hanging out with, and if they have access to firearms, because stopping it there uh, obviously is a much better scenario than what we've seen in some of these cases. Uh, he also talked about game rooms and some of the successes they're having there, really focusing in on prosecutions and also um, about repeat offenders and driving after that case involving the high school student at McKinley High School on Kefilani Boulevard. Yeah, always a lot to talk about with the Honolulu prosecutors. So we encourage if you miss any part of this, uh, you can always watch it again on the digital platforms of Honolulu Star Advertiser. Uh, catch it as a podcast later today or uh, watch it, the rebroadcast on Channel 50 later this evening. On Friday, we'll be switching gears. We're going to be talking to Jimmy Tokioka, a former legislator who has now been appointed into the role uh, to head DBED a department that has a lot of things on their plate uh, and will have to oversee things such as Aloha Stadium, uh, the redevelopment and the restructuring of potentially of the Hawaii Tourism Authority and his thoughts on how overall the diversification of the state's economy is going to be going. Uh, as some say, we are heading in towards a recession. DBET going to be a very key partner and player, I should say, in this role about where Hawaii's economy moves towards uh, in this next few years under the Green Administration. So we look forward to that uh, conversation on Friday. We hope you have a great Wednesday. We'll see you right back here on Friday for another episode of Spotlight Hawaii. Aloha. Aloha.